I got my friend Simbrash Cha back on the podcast, and uh, a lot's been going on. And I don't know. I'm just I'm really glad to have you here to talk about this. Yeah, can't wait, man. Let's do it. So let's first set up. Uh, you know, why would I be talking to you in this moment? Obviously, the the world's having a hard time. If it wasn't already, um, I've talked about the pandemic enough on this show. So let's uh, cheer things up a little with um, the current state of America, which is um, having a hard time right now. And uh, obviously, protests are around the world. I was just at one in Calgary the other day. And you are a lot closer to these issues than I am. You're an amazingly talented black photographer in New York. I am a white Canadian photographer. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's, an, it's an issue that I think is very important and, and worth, worth talking about, especially worth having longer conversations about. And you're pretty close to it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Thanks again for coming. Uh, let's start with what you're up to lately. You've been shooting the protests and uh, have even been on assignment for the New York Times. What's uh, What's it been like? Crazy. I mean, this is probably like one of the most ridiculous. It, that's not even. This is like the most ridiculous week I think I've ever had when we talk about like the intersection of personal and professional things going on. Um, basically, after. Uh, the, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, uh, when the demonstrations uh, started, um, I guess it'd be a week ago now, I just sort of thought that it was my civic duty to go participate in the march and take my camera. Um, as you know, Tyler, shooting and documenting people on the street is something that I have been doing since I first started photography. It was like the very first thing that I ever did, uh, shooting strangers and, and taking portraits of, uh, people that I would just walk past. So for me being able to document a time like this in a way that would help sort of tell the help in the telling of the greater overall story of, you know, what the black community and other minority communities have been dealing with, you know, not just nationally, but globally since the dawn of time. Uh, just, it was something that I felt like I just had to do. It wasn't even a question. There was no hesitation. So the first day I went uh, to do the march, um, and you know that, like, when I shoot during Fashion Week, most of the time, anything that I shoot during Fashion Week, that that content I only really put in my Instagram stories. I don't put a lot of that stuff in my feed until like way later. Still, still <laughs> a bad habit of yours. I'm going to break you that habit someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you call it a bad habit. I call it a personal <laughs> choice. But all right, uh, we'll, all right. We'll go with it. We'll go with it. Um, but basically, I just I did the same thing, you know, because I I still wasn't sure what it was that I either wanted to say or how I wanted to present what I had documented. And to be honest, that's really the reason why stuff just goes in my Instagram stories and not in my feed because I like the work or I feel strongly about the work, but I'm also as an artist, like very particular about making sure that the work is being communicated in a way that I intend. And when I'm just not sure, I'll just put it in the Instagram stories, as you know, like with little to no commentary or reference, I just put the photos in there and they disappear after the day, right? 
Well, let's also make sure for anybody that hasn't heard the previous time you were on the podcast that you you get your your general biography leading up to this too. Um, because even though, yeah, you're, you're very comfortable shooting strangers on the street, the way we met was uh, London Fashion Week doing doing exactly that. Um, the context is usually pretty different. Like, you know, a, a lot of your work is in uh, fashion and, and, and style. Um, so now all of a sudden, you know, things got a little more real for absolutely everybody. Um, so anyway, I mean, your fashion stuff is amazing. I know that's not the most important thing right now, but like, I, I, not at all. <laughs> I, I love you. I love your work. I love your work before this too, but it, it also is like, it's, it's a different eye. I mean, um, you know, looking at the work that you've been putting out covering the protests, like it has, it has a feeling that, that I've really appreciated and it's not necessarily the same as, um, you know, all, like the kind of beat reporters that are more, I don't know, just, I don't know. I like it. I don't want to say anything bad about photographers. I just like what you're shooting. That's all. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, uh, in a nutshell, you know, basically what happened was maybe a couple of days before the first March, I was just, you know, talking to a few people and not a few people. I was talking to two people, <laughs> just having like a very sort of casual conversation with everything going on with like uh, sort of the easing lockdowns and coronavirus. And we still, as photographers and image makers and artists, have not really been given the opportunity to work in a capacity that we were working before. So I hadn't photographed anything in months and I just was asking as a very casual, non-direct thing, like, uh, do you think I should maybe look into or consider doing more strict like photojournalism as, you know, work? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so the... The first march came. Uh, I took my camera. I participated in the march, documented, put the photos up on the uh, Instagram stories, and uh, just on a whim, uh, reached out to the first person I ever photographed in uh, a photo shoot uh, was uh, a New York Times editor. She's still with the New York Times, um, uh, but she's not an editor at Photodesk anymore. Her name is uh, Whitney Richardson. Um, I photographed her for a publication called Majestic Disorder. And it was the very first uh, photo shoot I'd ever done, maybe uh, nine years ago, eight or nine years ago now. The magazine's the other thing that ties us together through very strange coincidences. But yeah, <laughs> that makes the story longer. But uh, yeah, we, we shot them, yeah, we them too <laughs> by running into you in the street. I don't know. I'm just, just tying the threads. Basically, basically. Yeah. Um, Yes, yeah, so she was the very first person that I ever photographed, and she'd been at the New York Times uh, this entire time. Uh, but she's now uh, based out of London. She's out of a London office, and in ten years, I've never sent her any sort of email or communication about work. Nothing at all. <laughs> um, but I just kind of thought, well, people are really responding, and I'm getting so many like private messages about these images that I've posted, maybe they would be interested in, um, they, as in the New York times, maybe they would be interested in letting me submit like, you know, a photo or two during any stretch of the protest. And then two days later, as I was almost walking out of the door to go to another protest, um, they called me and asked me, uh, if they could, assigned me to the marches. So 
this whole week has just been so crazy. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's two things I kind of wanted to, to cover bringing, or not two things, there's a million things, two themes. And, uh, and one is just hearing more about your kind of experiences and, and your thoughts on both what's going on and what it's been like for you working as a, as a black photographer. And then also bring together some um, practical ideas for people that want to participate in what's happening right now um, you know, either contribute through their art, uh, or th- that want to be actively be, you know, showing up to a march. Um, maybe documenting what's around them. Maybe they're just sharing content from home, whatever it is, and try to bring that together. And it's like, how, how can people like us uh, connect with what's happening right now in a positive and useful way? So. Uh, I mean, that that kind of be a place to start is you've been going to these marches each day. You've been seeing what's going on. What could you tell to people that are, are considering going um, in terms of like, what should they expect? How can they feel prepared? Um, which will be a very different experience wherever they are. But do you have any generalized advice for people that are participating in it? Yeah, I have some advice. And uh, I guess I should frame, should disclaimer this by framing a lot of this by just sort of reminding that, you know, I'm both a black man and a black photographer who is um, documenting an issue that affects primarily black people. I think with a situation like this, with these demonstrations that are going on just around the world, we live in an age where every bit of documentation helps everybody who can contribute in a way and and not just in taking images like taking photos there are very many different ways that people can help but first i think it's important that you know if you've never participated in a demonstration or a protest before there are a few things that you should really understand and it really starts with the anatomy of any demonstration right I would say that there are three main groups that kind of make a a demonstration happen. The first level of it would be the actual demonstrators, the people who are there to make their voices heard or the voices of the people who need to be spoken for. Uh, The second group of people would be your support. That would be, you know, your first responders that would be your organizers. That would be the people on social media who are tasked with getting the information out to the public of like when and where events are happening. Uh, that would also be the people behind the organizations who their job is to communicate with city officials in terms of making sure that the protest and or the demonstrations, for the most part, are as orderly as possible to ensure the safety for the greatest number of people. And then the third group, um, which is sort of the group that this particular protest is mostly at odds with, would be your level of authority. That would be the police. That would be your city officials, right? And so anyone who, not anyone, uh, I'll speak for myself. When I go to a demonstration and I bring my camera, I am essentially part of the coverage. That would be the press, that would be your journalists, your writers, your photographers, your videographers. Mostly these people are at a professional level. 
you don't need to be a professional to come and document um, any kind of demonstration. As a matter of fact, it's people, mainly people with cell phones in their hands, taking video of interactions that are helping get the word out the fastest as to what's really happening at these marches, both for the better and for worse, right? But at the same time, I know as content creators, you know, this family that we belong in, there are a lot of people who their first instinct would be to take a DSLR down to uh, the Black Lives Matter protest. And I would say that at that point, specifically with this particular kind of protest, you know, if, if you're not a professional photographer or if you have not been sent to take photographs, it creates a conflict and a tension with both the demonstrators and the organizers. And in some cases, as we've seen, the police. Usually at the, you know, at a march, most of the press photographers, for instance, are fairly close together, right? The police know who they are and the police know that as a press photographer, there is uh, a whole dialogue of unspoken social and professional etiquette that takes place. I think we talked about this just a little bit in the last uh, podcast. And, and not just a little bit. There's a lot of uh, sort of just subtle subtle little things that can say a lot that can take years to, to really understand and you know operate successfully without pissing anyone off too much. Exactly. And with uh, demonstrations like this that have already been, in some instances, really high tension, stressful situations that have sometimes turned violent, that have sometimes turned deadly. Um, the last thing that anybody involved needs are people who come with their DSLRs who don't know what they're doing. So I'm going to caveat this whole thing by saying, this is just my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for anyone else. For Photographers that are hobbyists uh, that feel compelled to come to a march to photograph, whenever I've seen film 35 millimeter cameras, I think that that's just perfectly fine. Um, they're small and inconspicuous enough. Well, let's also spell out a bit, like, what, it, what is the concern? Like, what, what kind of negative at- attention can photographers bring to the space or, or how can it increase the tension? What could go wrong with it? The number one thing that I think with photographers, amateur photographers or photographers who are not used to being in this kind of environment is the very critical and simple idea of respecting space. It only takes one person to get in the wrong person's way for there to be, you know, problems. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I know you must be aware that there's this sort of whole dialogue that's been going on right now in social media and in the news about how people feel about, you know, their faces being documented, mm-hmm. being identified as participating in protest, being being identified in engaging in certain activities during a demonstration. And by certain activities, I just mean anything as open as possible. Let's be clear, like that there's 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 different things happening, and I think some people are conflating all of it. Yes. You know? So uh, the experience we just had the other day was we went to a protest here in Calgary, and I mean in Canada, what these protests like are, are like are extremely 
calm and there, there, there really isn't any hostility with the police. And it's, it's a very different experience than some of the situations you may have seen on more mainstream news where there might sometimes be an emphasis on that there's been some, there's been looting, uh, there's been some pretty big fights and clashes between protesters and police. And there's been a huge range of experiences and it's not just, it's not just one thing. So I don't know, we, we're using the word protest, but like some very different things have happened in different places. Um, I don't know. All, all I can speak to is my experience, which has been the most or well, like calm organized side of that. But yeah, I think we're both speaking to when I'm using the word, even though this is a protest, when I'm, when I'm using the word demonstration, I just, I'm using the word demonstration to sort of encompass any and everything that could happen at a protest. Because sure, at right. the end of the day, even when it's looting, it's still a demonstration, right? Even yeah. if it's a sit-in, it's still a demonstration. If people right. are holding a moment of silence, that is also a demonstration. So, But you spoke to something that's both really true, and, and I also want to just take it like a step further, right? So we can talk about looting on one end of the spectrum, but we can also talk about photographs that can be taken in a context or video that can be taken and or edited in a context that paint a very different story than what was actually happening in the moment, mm-hmm. right? So a very blanking example, two very blanket examples, uh, you know, if there's an altercation between a group of people, the first who started it side that gets published, whether it be in print or in social media, that then becomes the narrative mm-hmm. until there is some other evidence to disavow that, right? And by the time that's disavowed... Yeah, often it's too late. <laughs> yeah, it's too late. Yeah. It could be too late. So, yeah, it's not just the looters. It's not just the people who are engaged in, act- in illicit activities. Uh, sometimes and oftentimes it could just be people minding their own business who just get photographed or framed a certain way. Right. And so anyway, that was kind of a tangent, but the, the basis of the point is understanding that there's a sensitivity and an etiquette that goes along with how the documenting itself sort of happens, which is just another reason why, again, like for people who do not have a track record of photographing like real environments like this or anything close to or approaching this, the best option is just to bring only your phone. I mean, it sucks, but it is the most respectful thing that can be done for the greatest number of people. I mean, and it's a pretty damn good camera too. So it's, (laughs) as long as you have a phone made in the last five years, it's, you're, you're still going to be able to take some photos that, uh, you know, you accomplish your, your goal at the very least. Um, and I'd also say, you know, if anybody's there that doesn't really want to be captured, that communicating that can be really straightforward. Like it, it can be very simple. And most photographers should understand that subtle things like, uh, you know, if like either raising your hand to cover your face, just looking away should clearly communicate. Don't take my photo. And if you're, the photographer there, you know, be very mindful of that subtle body language and always defaults to respecting it. But how do you, how do you kind of treat this? Like, how do you decide who you are going to take photos of and then eventually publish photos of as well? Going back to uh, an earlier thing that I said uh, regarding track record, I think it's important. I, I should say that um, even though we sort of framed my earlier experience through the, 
the fashion industry, my experience, like either in fashion or shooting, you know, street style, if you, if you will. I've spent just as many hours, you know, walking around streets in many different cities, photographing just regular people doing regular things. I, I say that because I, it's important, I think, for people. I, it, it's important for me that people understand that when I photograph, first and foremost, like my empathy is with people. It's not really about the clothes. It's not really about uh, making people look cool. Obviously, as an artist, I want to make people look cool. Like I, I want that for other people. But the reason that I'm photographing people is because I care about people. And I hope that when people see my photographs, like an audience sees my photograph, that if they don't already, that they can somehow learn to care about, you know, people in different situations and different environments as much as I do. So when I bring that into the, the protest, for instance, right? I mean, this is a protest about the struggle of my people. So it's important for me that the empathy that I have in my regular, you know, photography life is not changed or compromised in any way when it comes to documenting this particular protest. And it's something that it, I hope that I'm executing it the right way and faithfully. I think you are. And, and wanting to is a big part of it. Uh, you know, another version of this done wrong that I see in, in normal times, you know, when there, there isn't so much happening in the streets is people photographing homeless people uh, for portfolio fodder. And if anybody listening has done that in the past or has thought about doing that in the future, just, just don't, <laughs> it's not, it's not the right thing to do. And, uh, it looks, it looks pretty crass and pretty gross. And I'd, I'd take that same approach when you're showing up these protests. Like if you feel like this is your chance to build a portfolio, uh, it's, this isn't the right time to do that. And, um, you know, it, it, think like make sure that your heart is in the right place, and and that your motivations for documenting it are are coming from the right place. And I think there there are a lot of people. I don't think them, I'm not seeing that a lot, but uh, just a little PSA in case anybody listening was was considering that. You say and you said that in 30 seconds. What it took me three minutes, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> but you, yeah, you just reminded me of something like your original, your you know, your original question. You know, when people are coming to these protests and these demonstrations with their cameras, you're out there listening, I guess. The most immediate question is, like, like, why are you doing the thing that you're doing, right? Like, are you doing this because you think that it's going to look cool on Instagram? If the answer is yes, you don't even have to admit it to yourself. But if the answer is yes, that means that you don't really care about the people that everyone's been marching for, right? Mm -hmm. If you're taking selfies at the march to show all of your followers and friends that you're at the protest, like you're not, you don't care about what is being done for the black community and oppressed communities around the world, right? This really is, I think, one of those few times where, and it's been echoed through many, many people who have been participating in the protests and demonstrations that, this is not really the time to be cool on Instagram. Right. Right. This is, this is yeah. not brand polishing. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, isn't. Yeah. <laughs> Let's also talk a bit about you in, in more general terms, like life for you as a black photographer, 
leading up to this moment. Um, you know, this is, this is a big moment, but it's going to change and move forward. Um, you know, it won't, it won't be this huge thing forever, but you'll still be working, uh, and, in you know, in the photography community. And hopefully that's a space that we can make better and, and more inclusive for a wider diversity of people and just make black photographers feel at home when they're shooting. So I don't know, like I'd let you kind of guide that question in terms of what has been challenging for you. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to go with it? I'm just going to give a super, super duper summary of my growing up up until maybe I got into high school. I was always either one of the only black people, black kids in my neighborhood, or I was only one of the one of the only black kids in my class. I now work in an industry where there are there are a lot of black people. There, there could be more, um, but if we were to draw a pyramid of all of the jobs and all of the levels where people sort of sit on this pyramid, there just aren't enough of us saturated throughout the pyramid. There's a ton of us at the bottom of the pyramid. And then there are a few select, exceptional few black individuals who are in very public, high-level positions, right? But the problem is that those individuals are so far removed from the working class black creators that the working class black creators have virtually no chance of ever being able to like reach up to contact a person in one of those sort of leadership or very public defining roles to get the kind of work that, you know, frankly, a lot of them deserve. Well, this is the pyramid. The pyramid you're talking about is sort of in, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of different things, but like uh, how well jobs pay for one thing, Um, just sort of the desirability of it. You know, I think a lot of photographers maybe don't love doing event work because it can be challenging and maybe not pay as much and try to move up towards either better, better paying events or just more prestigious jobs. Like is this, is is this kind of the pyramid scale you're thinking about is like the, how good the jobs are? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will throw out, uh, I'll throw out an example of, one black photographer who has done some really amazing work, Tyler Mitchell, who was, you know, the first black photographer to shoot a Vogue cover. This only happened, you know, what, two, three years ago? Whoa. And how long has Vogue been? (laughs) (laughs) How long have we had Vogue? How many years has Vogue been around, right? And I believe, you know, he, he shot more than one, but he still the only one who shot one mm-hmm. and he's sort of been blessed to get to this level where if there is like a high prestigious job, you know, he has a good agency behind him that can fight for him and get him the kind of work that he deserves. Right. There are so many black photographers who are just as talented, who are just as gifted, who are just as decent of human beings as Tyler is, right? But we are in an industry now where when photographers or names are being put forth, like if the name isn't Tyler, then a client or a brand may not be interested. So what does that mean sort of for the rest of us? You know, I've, I feel lucky enough 
and really fortunate that I've had some really nice, uh, I would say, exceptional clients who have both looked out for me and uh, mentored me with my development and ensured that I was paid fairly. But at the same time, like, why do they have to fight to ensure that I'm paid fairly, right? Doesn't yeah. that sound like problematic? Yeah. Like, no one's bragging when they tell me that they are fighting for me. As a matter of fact, like, I feel super grateful because, number one, they don't have to disclose that to me. Number two, <laughs> even if they were bragging, like, even if it was something that made them feel better, which I never took it that way, but even if it was, at the end of the day, it still means that there's a greater chance for me to get paid fairly. I think the biggest, one of the things that just discourages me and a lot of, a lot of us is this open secret knowledge, for instance, that, you know, between genders, there's, there's this whole, uh, hopefully there's this whole dialogue going around about the gender cap, you know, pay and structure, how men are always, almost always like making more money than women are. Right. Uh, along racial lines, it works the same way in my industry. It's not just, it's not even just the salaries. It can often be like the quality of the jobs case in point. Uh, when I attend fashion week or a series of fashionable events or gatherings, you know, most of the black creators that I have seen have been, shooting bts like behind the scenes stuff Mm -hmm. um maybe they're just shooting the parties very rarely very rarely are they tasked with uh doing like red carpet celebrity work yeah the very portraits yeah i don't even think i've ever in my nine years yeah i've never walked onto a set where there was a black director if i was not the director it's just Mm -hmm. never happened Unless it was like a designer, but the, like we're talking about creator, like uh, different kind of creators, uh, people with cameras. Let's just limit it to people with cameras, right? Sure. Why is that? It, it's because of all of the, those are like uh, some of the things that, you know, we march for. I mean, fashion is not high on the list of the things that we're marching for, that people are marching for. But it is just sort of a microcosm of a lot of social challenges that, happen to not just me, but all of us. Well, I think things to think about though, I mean, so fashion may not be, it may not seem really socially important in this moment, but at the same time, you know, having a wide representation of people in this socially influential part of life, that's why it matters, right? It's like, okay, not a, not a ton of people work in the fashion industry. Numerically, it's smaller than others, you know? Like, there's not that many photographer, fashion photographers out there. There's not that many photographers out there doing it for work compared to other industries. But, if, but it does have an outsized impact on society. And if all those photographers are white and men, we're not going to have any sort of balance in the the lens that the world sees fashion through, sees coverage of uh, events through, what, whatever it is, that's the reason to have, have a variety of perspectives on set because it shapes how we see the world. You know, the, people, the, the way that people point their lenses can have a huge impact. And if it's only white dudes, that's going to send a specific message to the rest of society. So, Yes, it, not only does it send a specific message to the rest of the society, but also 
you have to consider sort of the aesthetic voice that's being told, right? And for anyone out there who is not, let's say, a cis white male photographer, you know, how many times have you been invited to do a job and the client has seen your work, they know what your portfolio looks like and you show up and even if you've pitched an idea, like you show up and what they want to see doesn't look anything like your work, but in fact, it just looks like it's basic. Let's just say it's just, it's basic. And we're not talking about uh, clients and brands being like low tolerant of risk. Like this is not about low tolerant of risk. It's just that like, Hey, we've, we've brought like a little bit of diversity in a room, but let's shoot a thing in a way that's not diverse. That's like, uh, the old rules of anthropology, you know, from the colonial days. It sucks. Yeah. No, I mean, it obviously has all the wrong effects that we don't want to have. And I mean, even a, like a direct example, if I can draw on, on my experience a little, and even just to give the context of why my experience is very uh, not that useful here. So, I mean, I grew up in Western Canada where uh, I, you know, there's only one black kid in my junior high and, and one in my high school. Like I, I had, I didn't have a back, black friend until I was like 20 years old and he was an amazing photographer and I learned a ton from him. So like there's, yeah, anyway, so that's why, that's why I'm not that qualified to talk about it. But then what ends up happening as well is like, I'm not great at lighting black people. Like I don't really know what to do with darker skin in the same way that I do with lighter skin because it's just what I spend more time shooting, more time around. And then, uh, you know, just like we've, we've all heard the story of Kodak film being designed to own to basically when it develops, it doesn't show black skin. It just underexposes the skin completely. This is in the past. They've hopefully remedied it since then. But, um, that same effect can happen when somebody doesn't know how to light for it appropriately, or if the makeup artists on set aren't used to doing darker makeup, um, there's this whole series of things that happen if like your your whole crew is not um basically diverse if they're not uh, comfortable you know working or or don't have the experience working with people that have darker skin it uh drags down the whole project and same with all the way up to the creative direction as well so i have a few exceptional i have a few exceptional photographer friends who in my instagram dms get so livid when like a uh, high, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for when something high exposure work, like something that a lot of people are going to see. Okay. Yeah. When like high exposure work is of a black subject, that's just awfully lit. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And a lot of times those photographers are people who just aren't used to their, let me be fair, either they're not used to photographing like a uh, diverse range of uh, skin tones or they shoot a lot of diverse ranges of skin tones. But again, they are being asked, they're being put in a situation or an environment that does not allow them to work to their strengths, right? Like uh, let's say you have a photographer who only shoots black skin and they do it beautifully 
but all of it is done outdoors in natural light, right? And then all of a sudden you ask them to go into a studio for a job that Here's just a doesn't allow kit. them yeah. yeah, it just doesn't allow them to work to their strengths because of whatever decisions were made before that photographer was hired. Well, actually, could we have a little bit of a photography lesson here as well? Like, do you have any generalized tips for shooting black skin um, compared to like what what differences can be helpful if people don't know? Um, well, as you know, Tyler, I love shooting analog film, but I think most of your audience <laughs> is a digital audience, so is, I'm going is, to is that the tip? This. Shoot film. <laughs> <laughs> well, you learn a lot when you shoot film. Um, in a digital sense. The easiest thing to do would be to seek out your black friends or black models or anyone, like more diverse people, and just practice, right? But from a technical standpoint, I think usually the general rule is uh, two stops brighter. And the reason why, going back to the film, why it can be advantageous, advantageous to have the film is because film tends to be a lot more forgiving to overexposure, depending on your, like if you're shooting with your cell phone, your smartphone, for instance, like two stops of overexposure may completely blow out your background, right? Like I'm sure everyone listening has been in a situation where you were asked to shoot a darker skinned person and they were being backlit and you adjust the exposure so that you can see the person, but then it just looks like they're stepping out of heaven because everything is so bright behind them, right? Right. So film right away takes care of a lot of that because it allows for a much greater uh, latitude of exposure. Yeah, and the latitude lives inside of the highlights. Whereas on digital, the latitude is living more in the shadows, uh, but so is the noise. Exactly. But aside from that, uh, for very the easiest practical thing that uh, you can do, and you can probably do this if you're listening and you've got old raw photos of uh, darker skin, you know, subjects just laying around in your hard drive somewhere. Practice metering and adjusting your curves in black and white, not in color. Start in black and white because then you only see the luminance values. You only see the highlight shadows and midtones. And it can really help you understand both your uh, aesthetic for photographing, you know, darker skinned people, which might not be the same as the way that you photograph white people. And that's okay. You just gain a little bit more knowledge when you toss out the color information and you look at the things that matter the most, which are your shadows, your highlights and your mid The ratios. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. and I, I still always find it so interesting that people still end up on a vector scope on that same skin tone line. Uh, you know, with obviously some variants, but that de- regardless of the darkness, the mm-hmm. hue level is always so similar. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Like if you're looking at a ve- vector scope, you can always pull mm-hmm. up a skin tone line that just shoots off into the kind of, uh, you know, somewhere between orange and uh, red, like a yes. kind of pe- peach color. And or yellow and red, depending on the sure, yeah, ethnicity depends, of the person. Depends on how many, or how many points Brown. you go, but it's, yeah. it's somewhere in that range and that everybody will fall like, you know, a little to either the right or left of it, but that yes. you can use that as a, I mean, in the video world, unfortunately, we don't have vector scopes for photography, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, that as a general guide will get you pretty close with everybody, which is, I still think like really interesting because at a glance, you're like, oh, our skin looks really different. Then you pull up a vector scope and you're like, oh, we're, we're not as different as I thought. 
obviously in terms of contrast and light we are, but just in hue. I read somewhere, and if you know more about this than I do, please don't, please don't kill me in the internet uh, <laughs> on the message boards. But There's always somebody that knows more than us out there. So, <laughs> From what I understand, the reason why everyone falls in that very narrow kind of range of uh, hue value, regardless of what their ethnicity and skin tone is, it, it has less to do with the optical shade of the skin tone and more to do with the fact that we all like the same, the same blood is sort of just running right under the epidermis. Right. And that that's kind of what is actually being picked up and that the skin tone difference is so minute. If that makes sense, it's narrow because we all basically have the same blood and then the variation in the skin tone is just not as wide as one would think. I mean, that just sounds like a more poetic way of saying what I was trying to say <laughs> and more scientifically accurate as well. So yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that those details, um, speaking of like photographers that you appreciate, uh, I'd love to, I mean, a, a podcast is not the, an ideal place to showcase work. Obviously if anybody wants to see some portfolios, you should be looking at the YouTube channel cause we're going to have a bunch of photos going throughout this. And, um, but who do you love? Who can I put in the show notes? Who are some great black photographers for people to follow? Um, the first uh, would be Rudy Roy, who I met at Afropunk in like 2014, maybe. Uh, he shoots for National Geographic and basically just goes from town to town across America photographing and documenting people in underserved and underrepresented communities. The reason why I'm listing him first is because in addition to his photography being just wholly empathetic and, and serious, he writes some of the greatest like photo essays about his experiences, you know, photographing the people that he, he, he finds. Um, there is a lot of, just really deep and insightful social commentary that goes along with his images. So Rudy Roy is, you know, he's amazing and he is certainly like a pillar of our community. The next photographer, I just love this dude. He's amazing. Um, Daryl Hunter. He shoots a lot of, uh, street reportage for, uh, teen Vogue. Um, his Instagram is Mode Hunter. So Daryl has always had uh, an eye for going straight to the more diverse people uh, during a, like a fashion week season. Um, I should say like he shoots street style. Uh, so fashionable people, that's where his sensibilities sort of lie. But most of his work you know, centers around finding really exceptional and well-dressed uh, women of color. And he has really good social commentary that he puts in his uh, his Instagram feed as well. Yeah, I'm just flipping through his Instagram now and I've definitely seen him around. Yes. And he's just the gem of a human being. I mean, like everyone loves Daryl. Like he's just got such a great personality. Uh, <laughs> he's super professional. He does not use any kind of like negative speak when he is either on a set 
or even just with his colleagues, you know, the whole thing that happens, especially with, uh, with racism, it's like, we know what you guys say when we're not around. Like Daryl is the kind of guy that like, it's really hard to get him to say negative things ever. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're describing yourself right now too, but, uh, well, <laughs> uh, so Daryl's another one. And then, um, two, uh, really great, uh, female photographers. Uh, one is, um, Adrienne Raquel. Her work is very different. It sort of reminds me of the dreamy, the dreamy color Kodak era of like the early nineties. I don't know if anybody like remembers. Anyone remember the nineties? No, no. I I was going to say specifically, (laughs) but like if you ever look up like uh, photographs of portraits from like the early nineties, there's like usually like high saturated, like highly saturated colors. Um, the focus is sometimes a little bit soft. This is so good. I'm looking at it right now. It's amazing. It's it's, but it's so different. But just so imagine that, guys. But with black people, <laughs> it's it's awesome. Like I, I haven't I haven't seen anything like it really. Like then her work is just like really phenomenal. There's a uh, I don't want to butcher her name, but uh, Nadine uh, Ejere. She she's just really gorgeous uh, fashion portraiture. She's amazing with uh, natural lighting. She's really great at uh, getting the values of blacker skin tones or darker skin tones to offset with bright highlights in a way that is not quite high key because high key, when you have something that's high key, it sort of eliminates like the midtones. She's got really nice midtones, but in some way still manages to emphasize both the tonal shadows and the tonal highlights. Her last name is spelled uh, I-J-E-W-E-R-E. Well, and any, anybody listening, you don't have to try to memorize these, uh, obviously. Hell, we'll put it <laughs> Links in the, show, in the notes. show notes. Easy to find. <laughs> Tyler will hook you up. And then the last yeah, one, yeah. Um, just I just think his work is the coolest. I would say um, Goldie Williams. He's based out of uh, Paris. Goldie is amazing because I, I'm almost positive that he does – he shoots with an SLR – but he does 100% of his editing uh, on his mobile phone or his iPad. He does not use like a laptop or a desktop to edit any of his photos. And it is stunning. Like he has a way of taking like very modern compositions and just making them look like they were shot in the 50s or the 60s where uh, the sharpness starts to get like really smudgy and smoky. Um but still the textures and the tones are just really deep and rich. And he has a way of framing his shots. He just gets these angles that are, are phenomenal. And another thing that I want to say about Goldie, which makes him even more exceptional if you guys out there are able to check out his work and like the aesthetic of what he does, like Goldie is not interested at all in like super expensive gear. Like if it works, he will shoot it <laughs> and send it to his phone, and like you, you'll never know. You'll I never. Wish know. I could say that about myself. Yeah, he just makes it work. Yeah. He's like, does the camera work? Can I meet her? Great. And then, yeah. Well, I want to throw in a few that I like too. Uh, I'll I'll be quicker, but uh, Jeremy Mitchell is an awesome guy in the kind of fashion space. Great photographer too. Dapper Lou, I've been following forever. Love his. Dapper account. Lou is amazing. He's yeah, so yeah. good. Like on so many levels, it's crazy. And then, oh, can I just uh, jump in about Dapper for yeah, a second? Yeah, yeah. I just, I'll make this really brief. 
Dapper was Dapper Lou was one of the f- very first photographers I ever met when um, I started my blog when I first started uh, photographing in 2012. Just walking around the city of New York photographing strangers, he was, and I ran into him because he was so well dressed. So I wanted to take a, a portrait of him. <laughs> yeah, his work has evolved to a place now in 2020. Where like if you saw his earlier work, which was always really good and on point, like you would think that they were two completely different photographers. Like he's he's phenomenal. He's amazing, but consistently great. It's consistently great. And then the the, the last one I was going to throw in there is Nasca, a friend from Montreal who does amazing portrait work as well. So hit all those links because they are all worth following. I, I also wanted to get a little bit practical with some of the conversation here and talk about what people can be doing now. Especially people that are that are going out. I mean, which we talked about going out to the demonstrations, to protests right now, and photography, especially video, is playing such a huge role. I mean, that's actually that's actually one of the things that, that I've just been thinking about. It is like, wow, video is here, and that's that's not new. Obviously, like we've all been seeing viral videos for a while, but it's so much the um, the, fav- the the favorite form of media to cover this moment. I I think anybody that like even just seeing a photo compared to seeing a video, the video is going to be a lot more compelling in, in telling whatever story it is that you're trying to in terms of this, in terms of news. I mean, especially just when something crazy happens in front of you, hit, hit record. I mean, uh, a video is going to, uh, not not to take away from the great photography work that you've been doing, but for, for average people, uh, you know, it's what will... I don't know. It's what people are going to believe the most. It's kind of got like a, a, a emphasis on truth there. So I want to talk a little bit about like how I could see people that have shared some of the most impactful videos could be shooting them a little bit better. These are basically technical tips, but oh, and and before before we, before we get into the tips, just to sort of dovetail yeah, yeah. this back to the beginning of the conversation, right? It's the number one reason that like if you're just there to participate but you also want to document that the phone is the best thing to have because if you are shooting video on your camera, you got to take it home, right? You got to upload it. You got to grade it. You got to do all this Mm -hmm. stuff. But on the phone, like you can just capture it and send and broadcast so fast. You can broadcast live. So which which matters right now. I mean, some of these, some of these biggest moments I've been following, I've been able to follow them as they're happening. Exactly. You know, like that crazy, awful moment of Trump giving his Rose Garden speech and at the same time, all the protesters being kicked off of the, out of the front of the White House. I was watching him speak live and seeing my feed start to fill up with like the videos from what was happening in front of the White House. And that's such a crazy experience that that even can happen right now. And it's because of phones, you know. Um, we were actually, we were watching part of the documentary uh, LA 92, but the LA riots, uh, it's a national geographic documentary. It's available on YouTube right now. So a good watch at this moment, but something that stood out is all of that coverage is the news. You know, there's a few people with home recorders, like some footage from on the ground, but a lot of it is like helicopters just zooming in and trying to show what's happening. And which is what a stark difference from the way that we're seeing this play out depending who you are. Cause obviously some people are still just watching the news, which is weird to me, but, <laughs> but to me seeing it on Twitter. Yeah. TV news sucks right now. And I, and <laughs> I, I haven't even like, watched it. What's like, what is happening on TV? I can't even, I don't even, I just don't want to see what's happening on TV. So I'm not watching it at all, but ever since this started for anyone who has asked about like where to get information, 
the very first thing that I say that I type or that comes out of my mouth is, listen, if you have a TV, please don't watch the news. Like, don't watch your local news. Don't watch the cable news. They have to make money. And the only reason, the only way they're going to make money is if something is happening at a protest somewhere that is exciting enough to compel people to watch. Yeah. Right. But going back to documenting on video. Um, right. Well, I, I wrote down notes on this one cause I knew I'd forget some of them. Um, but, but then I had a great idea here. This is a great idea that I didn't write down cause I thought of it after. Mm-hmm. If you are shooting photos and you have an iPhone or something that does this shoot live photos instead, shoot the one where it takes an image and it also records little video clips on each side of it. Cause you might end up capturing something that you didn't even realize was going to be that important. Like that's, that's a lot of the approach of, of this type of capturing right now. It's like, and I mean, I, I guess I'll spell it some of the motivation of like why this documenting it well happen, happens to matter to me. Like what I see it as important for is telling both the, the sort of true story of like what's real, what does it really feel like to be there because of what you say. There's that news slant that preferences excitement and drama and all that. And then also to capture terrible moments. There's a lot of awful police brutality going on. Um, there are th- bad things happening on both sides. Like there's some people get into fights that are unreasonable, whatever. Like, and, and we talked about earlier, like that idea of capturing people's faces and like whether it's okay to publish them or not. Again, yeah. if they don't want to be published, I think you probably shouldn't. I mean, to me, if they're doing something they sh- that is illegal, I feel, well, it depends how illegal. <laughs> uh, that's I mean, let, very let, gray let, area right I, I now. Like, real, if, real talk, right? Real talk. Like, yeah, yeah. If you are at a protest where people are doing something illegal, like full stop, you shouldn't be there. Especially yeah. right now with what's going on. Like here in New York, like I can't stress this enough. Like if the police have a reason to go after a group of demonstrators, they will. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, like there's no reason, there's no reasoning, there's no talking yourself out of it. Like things just get hairy really quickly. And, you know, for your own personal safety, for the safety of the people that maybe are around you or the people that you've brought, it's not, it's not worth it, but it's not worth it. And, and all, and also like, we already have all the images and all the video Mm -hmm. of that stuff happening. Right. What would you be doing right now if you're in the middle of something that is like, is very peaceful, something you can get behind and somewhere pretty nearby, like let's say a store is broken into, what's your response to that? Do you want to just gear yourself out of that situation or do you feel like you would still be documenting it? That's a super personal question, but I'm just curious. <laughs> it is a super personal or question. Or just like, or do you not know until it happens? Things can happen in the blink of an instance, right? Like that's how people get hit by cars, right? Like one minute yeah. a person is there and, one per- and the next minute they're not. So I'll say this, you know, uh, when I go out with my camera, especially to document something like this, I am assuming a great deal of personal risk and I have accepted the risk. And I'll say this pointedly to you know people who are listening who specifically aren't black. Let's just say specifically white. You know, as a black man who was once like a black kid who was then a, like a young black man. <laughs> um, 
I've been in a lot of situations that were just flat out dangerous, not because I was being reckless, but because I was perceived a certain way or because the people around wanted to either like flex sort of like their white or cultural dominance over my personal self, which means my personal safety. So I've lived a lifetime of having been in a lot of situations where there were a lot of tenseful moments and and altercations, right? So for me, when I'm going to a protest, like my risk tolerance level might be completely different from someone who has never even been like in a fist fight, not condoning fight, like fighting, but like, right? Like if, if you don't know what it feels like to get punched in the face or kicked in the stomach, it's something that you have to consciously ask yourself if that is something you were willing to accept when you go, yeah, you know, yeah. Do you want to know what that feels like? Right. And I'm not saying this to scare people out of like doing protesting, like the actual demonstrating and protesting for the most part for 95% of the people who have participated, it has been nothing but cordial and peaceful for most people. I'm, I'm talking specifically from the standpoint of, you make the decision to go to a protest or demonstration to document the event. Because when you're documenting the event, the chances are very high that you might be in a closer proximity to the police. You might be in a closer proximity to the people at, who are at the demonstration who are also the angriest or who have the most at stake, right? So the tensions are much higher at the front of the line than it might be at the back of the line. The tensions might be way higher at sunset than at 12 p.m. So assessing your own like sense of personal risk tolerance is, is hugely important. I think that's probably the, the best advice we could give. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with like, you know, uh, video tips, but just no, in no, answering no, your question, I mean, when I go out, like that's, yeah, yeah that's... Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's a lot of photography life that or photography advice that gets left out is like life advice. I mean, it's so much of what your work is is depend is the life that you live, you know. And good life advice can turn into good photography advice. So, I think it's worth saying. I'm still going to go back to my list, though. Let's do I it. I feel like more people should be uh, shooting 4K. That's one thing I I don't. So. Uh, this is also something about your social network that you choose to upload it to. Like, where is this going to go? Everything I've seen has been like super compressed because I'm also seeing most things on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Twitter is where the fast, I think is the place to see the fastest response of like what's really happening. It's where most actual journalists are. So they're already making it a priority to surface important videos. Like they're looking out for it and they're going to bring it forward and, if you have a video that you feel like it's important to get out there, that's, I think, the, the, the place to post it. Because there's, there's just a different culture around other places. And uh, also in terms of if you're looking for where to get your news, I'd say on Facebook, for example, you're going to see a lot more reposts of like network television. Um, you're going to see a lot less from people that are actually there showing the real experience of you know, what's, what's happening on the street. Um, and by and by the time it gets to you on Facebook, it's already been filtered through whatever voices want to express how they feel about that thing, yeah. that that piece of content. 
Yeah. A lot of the time, yeah, the Twitter post is directly from whoever posted it. And I think the same thing happens on Instagram that a lot of the time, just because of the way reposting works on Instagram, you're going to less often see original posters have their content go viral. Yeah. Um, so if something's really important, it's, it's harder for the original source material to really spread. Whereas on Twitter, it's going to, you know, it'll, it'll take off. Um, yeah, yeah. But, like, uh, Oh yeah, go ahead. I, Oh, I was just gonna say, but I don't think Twitter really support, I don't think they support 4k at all. So, um, in that case, I mean, then you're kind of, you know, then it's YouTube and, and Facebook are 4k, but yeah. Is, and wait, is Facebook, Facebook, uh, Oh, you know, I don't ever put video on Facebook. I have no idea, but Me neither, yeah. I would say to the point, you know, about resolutions, uh, I think if you have a video capturing device that it is capable I mean, for something like this, shooting at, you know, 60p is helpful <laughs> as opposed to like 24p or 120p. Uh, shooting at 60p is probably optimal. But aside from that, you know, you don't have to shoot in 4K if the reason that you're shooting the thing is simply to tell the truth. And I want to be really clear, you know, for anybody that goes to a Black Lives Matter protest or a protest for Breonna Taylor, for uh, George Floyd, if, like, you shouldn't be thinking really about how to make your video look cool. Like, it, it's good, I guess, to, to, to think about those things in general and prior to sort of showing up. But, like, once you're actually at a protest, we all have to have, like, respect for the community and respect for the other people who are participating in this together. That being said, don't, <laughs> don't use your cell phone and like zoom in all the way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a really good one. So, and that's the, that's the hope or the spirit of, of these pieces of advice. It's definitely not for like how to make, how to make a demonstration look more cinematic, mm. uh, but how to, how to best most accurately capture it. Um, and like you say, I think 60, 60 frames per second makes a lot of sense. And that's also something I don't see anybody really doing. But um, And also only in the daytime, as it gets darker, it might end up being underexposed. So, so think about that. Yeah. Also, just in terms of, um, you know, if anybody's wondering, like, oh, should I, are there any special apps I should be using? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd suggest usually using the default camera app. First of all, it's going to crash less because it's first party. It's just going to be a reliable way to capture whatever it is. And then afterwards, you can post it to the social media network of your choice. This goes for anything. Like same with like Instagram Live, if you're, or sorry, Instagram Stories, if you're doing 15 second stories as well. There's a, I've had Instagram crash on me plenty of times. And if you happen to get something important, you can pretty easily lose it. And that's just going to happen a lot less if you're using the native camera app. So th- those are some reasons I'd lean towards capturing everything in there even if you're posting it right away to your social network of choice yeah and if you if you want to then further edit a video uh which is you're right and you know especially if you're striving to capture and produce work at a more professional looking level you can always just import that footage into an app later i I think that's really great advice tyler and probably the best advice is just to go photograph you know, when you have your your smartphone, just use the actual camera phone or camera video recorder. Like, worry about the rest of the stuff later. But at least, at least you know that if you're recording it with your default program, 
you are recording at the best possible spec that the phone will allow. Yeah, Instagram clamps down in, in various ways, especially on Android. It is worse quality. It it really does degrade the image. So yeah, you can just always avoid that by by using the proper the original camera app. And uh, the the other side of all this is like is the right way or the most useful ways. I don't know. I don't know how to f- frame it, but good ways to contribute online. I mean, maybe for people like me that I'm not that close to it. I'm going to the local protests when they happen, but. In a lot of ways, a lot a lot of the, the activity that I'm doing is things like this. It's just like talking to like having conversations and sharing things that I feel like could be useful. And I want to give you I want to give you the last word on this. So I'll just like quickly say my view of what I what I feel like does and it doesn't contribute. Um, one thing that I see being very common and I don't see as being terribly productive is focusing on sharing things like quotes. Uh, and just sort of throwing around really brief sentences that anybody can kind of cherry pick or interpret in the way that they want to express their your really specific message. To me, that is never as productive as a real conversation. And I've, I mean, I've just I've seen it lead to all sorts of divisions. Uh, people kind of arguing over people attacking each other using catchphrases mm-hmm. and. I think it is good to argue. I think it's good to have a difference of opinions for people to express them and, and work through them. But a conversation is the right way to do that. Um, so, I mean, the basics of that are like, don't be a dick on Twitter. Like, just be, <laughs> hopefully you already know to, to like be a, a nice person and like generous in your understanding of what the other person might be trying to say and like give them hopefully a favorable interpretation if, if possible. But then as you talk about it, we're going to make the most progress here, I think, by bringing people that are already, you know, maybe somewhat sympathetic, but aren't being active or people that, uh, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're a, a little racist and we can get them to be a little less racist. Like, let's bring as much progress as we can and just like scathing uh, people that are, are hopefully going to be allies. I, I I don't find being the like super productive. So I don't know. Let's like, but anyway, what, like, what can I do as well? Like, I'd love to know when you see your white friends posting stuff online, like what actually feels useful and feels like it can help move things forward. I'm glad you asked that question, Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) I, I would say that what's most befuddling to me is when I have white friends that, have never never really posted anything about uh, the struggles of black people or other oppressed people um, in a context that wasn't tied to an event happening, right? So maybe if, maybe you know a white person may be like, "Oh, well, when the first Black Lives Matter march happened, like I was posting all the time, and it's like, yeah, but that was the first and the last time you did it, right?" To those people, I would say the best thing that that you can do, because uh, participation is really helpful, and all of the voices would put together are what helps make you know a difference. But I would say, really simplify your activity. In a lot of cases, it might mean that you are posting less content. The amount of content that you post is both not significant 
and can also be detrimental to the perception of uh, how others see you if you are just re-aggregating uh, a lot of things that everyone knows that you are not actually participating in, right? So when I say simplify your activity, this is what I mean. If you're going to post uh, a link to funds to donate to, I would sincerely hope that you also donated, right? If you are posting, forwarding information about uh, marches that's happening in your area, I would hope that you go out and participate. And if you can't go out and participate, it is okay to say that you can't go out and participate, but you still want to make sure that everyone else has the information, right? This is what we say is, uh, you know, walking the talk. It's just, it's not cool to repost a photo of a stack of black literature if you have no, you have no ambition to like go on Amazon and buy at least one of the titles, right? It's not cool to repost some like powerful and highly inspirational things that are being said by members of the black community who are doing the most work. If you're not also going to follow them and subscribe to the content that they're putting out and the messages that need to be received by as many people as possible. So all of that stuff that you were posting up until the moment you heard this podcast if you didn't participate in any of the stuff that you were reposting, it's okay. All that stuff doesn't matter anymore. But going forward, just try to be mindful of your participation because, you know, it's sort of like when you go out and you want to start running, but you're out of shape, right? It really, it's like, it's cool the first day and it's kind of cool the second day. And then it really sucks for the next two weeks. And then you wake up on week three and all of a sudden you realize that, you can do the thing, right? And that's kind of what this is. It's, it's, you know, we see that you care now because everyone's talking about it. But if everyone's not talking about it eight months from now, are you still going to care? Are you still going to be receptive to news of any instances of, you know, social injustice happening, you know, to members of the black community, to other minority groups, to women? Are you still going to have conversations with people uh, to gain better understanding? And when I say gain better understanding, I don't mean ask a black friend. I just mean, how can you have more conversations with a more diverse set of people to get better understandings, not just of our perspectives in our daily lives, but also in better understanding how the systems work. And I'll say this one thing to you, um, Tyler, because it's sort of been, this has been my mantra as long as you've personally known me since what, 2014? You know, every time something happens, every time like an un unarmed black person gets shot, you know, what do we hear when the police officers responsible uh, don't go to jail? The system is broken. Like we need to change the system. It's broken. And I'm like, no guys, like the system isn't broken. I hope everyone understands this. Like the system is not broken. It is working as designed. It is working as intended. Like the system wants me to go to jail. The system 
wants a police officer to look at me at 10 p.m. and just automatically assume that I'm up to no good. The system wants to treat me like I'm innocent, like that I'm guilty until proven innocent, and you, Tyler, that you are innocent until proven guilty. That is how the system works. And and for me personally, I think my greatest my greatest frustration just comes from so much talk about the system is broken and it needs to be changed. And I'm like, no, guys, they want the system to work exactly the way it is working. That is why politicians, that is why police chiefs are so smug when this stuff happens. And they only start acting surprised when people line up in front of City Hall. They want it to happen. And so we have to look at the system in this kind of way and look at it socially that like what we really need now is for people to understand this so that we can bring in a new system. It's not about changing the system. It's just about making a new system because the one that we have cannot be fixed. It's not Mm. broken. It is not broken. It's, it's just horrible, (laughs) but it's not broken. I, uh, I really appreciate your perspective on it because it matters. And um, I'm really glad to have you as a friend and glad to have you back on the show. And if anybody wasn't following Simbarash before today, well, hopefully you are right now. Thanks for having me. And I hope that everyone just do what you can, like just do what you can one day at a time. 